Welcome to episode 117 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined for the 117th time by my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hey, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Do you know that 117 is a multiple of nine because all the digits add up to nine? You ever learned that math trick? I, I, kn- I knew the add up to nine thing. I didn't know that 117 was one of those, although I would have figured it out eventually. But yes, yeah. fair enough. I just thought that was some fun 170. Good fact. I just remember thinking, I don't know why, I just thought of when I was live vlogging Isra Mahout and tried to come up with like clever things to say about numbers as we got into like 54. It's like the whole studio of matches out there. Like, I mean, it got pretty delirious pretty quickly. Yeah, I think many people kind of lost their mar- marbles during that match, whether live blogging or not, or p- playing. Anybody who had marbles to begin with really should have lost them. How you? I know. If you kept your marbles, you weren't paying attention. <laughs> That's probably true. It was a sl- week of tennis worth not paying attention to, although John Isner of the aforementioned Isner Mahout did win a title in Atlanta. Rafael Nadal won in Hamburg. Teliana Pereira won in Florianopolis. Margarita Gasparian turned the lights off in Baku. Uh, JJ showed up in Nanchang and was treated like a princess, according to her, and had a great time. And Dominic Team won a second title in two weeks in Gestad. I don't think any of this has major significance to you, Courtney. So much tennis, but no. A quantity probably, over quality I mean, week. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that, you know, if you're going to walk away from last week, you say Dominic Team playing some good ball. Yeah. Um, I think that that's pretty darn clear. Margarita Gasparian, like, kind of one to watch maybe. That was cool. Possibly. That was cool. Her yeah. Her that up. That was cool. Because, you know, I mean, she was 3-1 up on Serena and in the first round of Wimbledon. With that crazy backhand that seems completely unreadable. And uh, yeah, kind of kept doing that thing in Baku, beating uh, Patricia Maria Tig, which uh, would she, she would have been after she forced the third set um, in the final, would have been the lowest ranked player to win a title this year. Hmm. But it was not for, it was uh, not to be for uh, Ms. Tig. And um, Rafael Nadal, what do we make of Rafa's title win? Anything? No, I mean, he. I didn't get to see almost any of it because of uh, apathy. But I, <laughs> I, but I love the honesty. But I think that from what I heard from several people, he was not in like sparkling form. He sort of slogged his way through a draw of players he should beat on clay, including Fanini. Even though he lost to Fanini twice this year, he should still be beating Fanini, and he beat Fanini. There were some fireworks. I always enjoy that when, you know, boys were boys, etc. But overall, uh, I, from what everyone was saying who was watching this closely, even the Rafa fans, like, there's not, this wasn't, like, a turning point. It's uh, it's good that he's no longer sinking actively. I mean, when you win a title, you're winning matches and you're not regressing. But was there massive steps forward here either? I don't know. We'll see what he does on the hard courts. That's all that matters the rest of the year. All hard courts from here on. Rubber meets the road in uh, Montreal. Yeah, exactly. So, yep, I agree with that. And, uh, yeah, so the other things that happened, um, that was it, pretty much. I mean, yeah, this is a week that's sort of people getting their bearings back. Hamburg's kind of a throwaway tournament. Um, even though it's a 500, he was the only top 20 player there. Washington will be big, m- bigger. Stanford will be bigger. Um, 
in terms of relevance for U.S. Open, obviously. Washington, especially on the men's side, has a really pretty good field. We'll see Murray and Nishikori and Chilich and Dimitrov, Anderson, Gasquet, Lopez, Isner, Troitsky. Those are all top 20 players, not a top 20. So that's a solid start. And then it's a pretty condensed way. Because that's the thing with, uh, I feel like with later Wimbledon, U.S. Open series type events, because U.S. Uh, Washington is no longer technically U.S. Open series, but this part of the calendar will sort of uh, sneak up on us a bit. I don't know. feels like it's coming sooner, because it is, I guess. It is. It definitely is. Yeah, no, it, it was a bit of a slow week. That That is definitely for sure. And it's always hard to figure out what to read into lower level events. Um, and as people who listen to this podcast know, I'm very cautious when it comes to reading into uh, individual results from a week-to-week basis but um yeah I mean I think you're absolutely right about Rafa good that he's just moving forward and um as for the tournaments this week um I wonder I, I wonder a little bit whether or not the withdrawals will be bigger news than the actual results by the end of the week we'll see I mean Serena uh, obviously is the story she's the eight top item every single week this this until through the U.S. Open so yep. her pulling out of Stanford, which happened since our last show, is news in that she doesn't seem to, I don't get the sense from her when I'm reading in her statements that she's like panicking about this injury at all. Yeah. But she is playing it very cautious. Uh, I expect her to play Canada next week. Maybe it may be like a match or two in Cincy, depending on how she does in Canada. That's sort of what I, how I would play it if I was her. And uh, we'll see. I think that she, yeah, playing Stanford with a travel with her. If there's any doubts, why risk anything this year? And everything. And, and aside of, and, and even setting aside doubts, I mean, if, if you're just not ready to go, yeah, you know what I mean? Like just like mentally, physically, emotionally, all of it, if, you know, because once she gets into tournament mode, she locks, I, I would think, I would presume that like you kind of lock into tournament mode. Like you don't kind of go into tournament mode and then like dip out of it and dip into it and dip out of it. You know, that's a mark of the more toggle era for her, especially. I mean, she hasn't yeah. gone into tournaments kind of half-assing it, which she did in previous iterations of her career i mean there was a uh, you know when she went to cincinnati and lost to Sibyl bammer in the third round because she was sort of over it you know that sort of stuff hasn't happened for her lately and that's why she only has one loss all year it's because she is showing up to every event she plays now with complete intent to win it or you know win every match she takes court for she's been more and more proactive about pulling out of tournaments she's pulled out of a lot of tournaments relatively without being noticed since uh Let's go back to Wuhan. She pulled out of Wuhan and Beijing. She pulled out of Indian Wells, injury, midway in the semifinals. She pulled out of Rome. Yep. Yeah, she's done a lot of pull-ups. It's her thing now. And Stanford now. And Castles, if you want to add that. And Bastad. That's just in the last 12 months. That's a lot of pull-outs. That's as many as, you know, players like Azarenka got when she had a reputation for pulling out a lot. It's probably more than that, actually. So, but I, Serena gets so much, gets a lot of slack for it, deservedly because of her age, because of what she's going for. I think nobody's really second guessing this, but it has been a lot of quantity of pulling out. It, it, it's like Serena has been saying and said all throughout Wimbledon. She has nothing to prove. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that that does, I think that that mentality is, is she's, she's totally right. Um, and, uh, but it does, you know, obviously inform her, her schedule and, 
you know, another Bank of the West title probably doesn't do much uh, for Serena Williams other than, you know, pad the checkbook. Get and, her a teddy bear, right? You get a teddy yeah, bear. Yeah, get her a teddy bear yeah. and earn some goodwill uh, with the Northern California fans. But um, other than that, I mean, like I think Ben and I both said a couple of podcasts ago, uh, the most important thing for Serena Williams as she goes into New York is being healthy. And that doesn't ne- necessarily mean physically healthy, but uh, mentally just everything rested and ready to go. So whatever she needs to do, in order to get herself there for New York, I am in full hearty support of, even if it's, uh, you know, it may let down some fans here or there, but, um, you know, the payoff of what she's going for this summer is uh, is pretty mighty. Yeah, no, totally. And also in pullout news, both Azarenka and Bouchard pulled out of Washington, which... Were you surprised by either of those? I mean, you're in D.C., so that's your um, tournament to cover, but... No, I'm not, because it, it was surprising to have them both in the field originally, so then pulling out doesn't surprise me, especially when you see, like, Azarenka having a big costume birthday party on Saturday, which, theoretically, if she'd been planning on being in Washington, that would not have been happening. Uh, no, I, I think this week, for with the two back-to-back uh, Premier 5-slash-Masters events coming out, Washington's and Stanford have always been susceptible to, to pull-outs as part of the perils of the calendar, where they are. So, no, and, and Jeannie's pulled out twice in a row now she pulled out last year too so not shocked but fair enough there you go this was where she, where she got her first career win was at this tournament that's right back in 2011 i was there she beat allison risk and maybe like five people were watching it was cool speaking of Jeannie when she was younger and just young people in general we have a pretty cool thing lined up for the majority of this episode courtney our, i'm excited our interview with colette lewis of zoo tennis fame is here to talk to us about junior tennis and all sorts of stuff regarding junior tennis. It's a pretty wide-ranging, deep conversation with a lady who knows her stuff. She is the junior tennis czar. Junior tennis in college, yeah. But Colette's great, and she's such a... I mean, when you talk about value adds in the tennis community, uh, Colette Lewis is, for me, one of the, the, the absolute top ones because she does the work that... Uh, I'm sure that there are times where she curses under her breath that we don't do. Um, that is, you know, shining a light on the junior tour and and on college as well. But her dedication and her knowledge is second to none. And without her, I, I think that uh, I'd probably write about juniors far less because she's just such a tremendous resource. And she's a specialist in a way that I would yeah. dare to say pretty much, unless you talk about people from various small countries being specialists in their countries. I don't think there are many people as specialized in definitely American tennis media maybe even english language tennis media as colette i mean unless you want to call like the brits like andy murray specialist but i mean she covers one corner of the sport in a comprehensive way that a lot of people don't get the don't really have the option of doing and her her way of doing that i think is very appreciated within her world and she has a lot of insights into her world and there's a lot of different stuff that we've talked about some of the a lot of these issues in passing but it was cool to get her on for a very dedicated deep dive i think into into the juniors most definitely so here is colette with us enjoy guys we're very excited to be joined by colette lewis who you may know as zoo tennis on the internet uh colette is from the zoo which is kalamazoo where the boys nationals are taking place this week hi colette how you doing Hi, Ben. I'm doing great. Awesome. We're, well, very, we want to have you on the show for a long time. And with Kalamazoo going on this week, it seemed like the perfect week. And I know you're you're from Western Michigan, Kalamazoo, originally, right? 
I am. That I, that's what I grew up uh, coming to this tournament, watching Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe. And yeah, it goes back away. So yeah, the tennis roots are pretty deep here in, in Kalamazoo. How, how did so. you? How did you get into it? How did you get into tennis more generally? And then I guess specifically, how did you become like really the, the so into junior tennis and being really the leading sort of voice in that field? Well. I thank you. I guess that was a compliment. Sure, I, it was. Absolutely, uh, it is. <laughs> I well, I it's Kalamazoo because this is it's a small town, and it never really had any big time pros. Um, you know, we're a couple hours from Detroit and Chicago, so when when somebody like Jimmy Connors would come to town, and then uh, two years later would be playing on TV at the U.S. Open, you got the idea that oh wow. This is kind of, uh, this is like pretty cool to see guys that are this good and going to be, you know, winning Grand Slams. Um, so just kind of gravitated to that. I was always a sports fan. And this being, you know, the biggest sport in this town during the summer, for sure, it just seemed, you know, kind of a natural. And, and again, that, that was a pretty cool time. Um, that's when I started getting interested in it because, you know, the guys were my age and then by, you know, a couple of years, they were up there doing well. I remember you telling me something like that the girls in Kalamazoo would go to the, the boys tournament to try to like meet guys. Is that true? Oh yeah, there was a, there was a dance and <laughs> okay. it still goes on. I mean, I think maybe it was social media, not quite as much as it, it has before, but yeah, they used to, they used to promote that here and yeah, I'm sure... Uh, you could talk to probably a good 20% of the boys that have played Kalamazoo and they will have their Kalamazoo gal story for you. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> You're definitely adding that to our list of standard questions. The Kalamazoo gal. <laughs> Were you were you a Kalamazoo gal or no? Was that... Oh, we're going there. Are we? <laughs> we don't yeah, have, we probably. Don't have to. <laughs> we don't have to. Uh, uh, I'll just say yes and move on. Okay, that's good. Good for you. Um, so, so I guess how did you how did you get into the sort of media side of this tournament? How did the tournament change from just being a cool event in your hometown to something that you started covering? And I guess, how did it broaden out beyond the borders of the city limits of Kalamazoo? Yeah. When, when I, I have uh, sports training um, and I did a lot of journalism and then kind of gravitated to a different career. And, and so when I retired um, kind of early, I decided that I would volunteer for this tournament because in spite of being here and, and coming for, you know, I've been to Everett's final for 37 years. Um, I, I just, it, it was something that I wanted to be a part of um, rather than just be a spectator of. And so I volunteered and they put me on the website committee. And this was back in 2000 when websites uh, for tennis tournaments, especially junior tennis tournaments were non-existent. But it was just sort of uh, the thing that anybody in this town, any business, will get together and support it. And so they had, you know, people that were technology, people that were interested in doing the website. And so I got assigned to that as, as a volunteer and uh, just did for a couple of years, not very much. But then all of a sudden, about 2004, I decided that, yeah, you know, that that reporting that training that you've done, you know, back in your past, that might be fun to, to try again. And it didn't seem to me like anybody was doing that very much. There were a couple of websites that were covering junior tennis. Um, but 
I, you know, it seemed to me like, especially with my background here, it kind of gives you instant credibility to say you're from Kalamazoo, right. just because every every male that's American that's ever played, you know, this is a legendary place. So I thought maybe I could add something to it, and so I started writing for the website. Um, then in 2004, I somehow got a media guest credential to the U.S. Open, and I really could see there that there, there was really an opportunity that no one was really taking that I could cover um, junior tennis and, and kind of, I started with the boys, but then I gradually kind of, you know, broadened my base and, and went into uh, covering the junior girls tournaments. A lot of, of the ITF tournaments are, are cold tournaments anyway, boys and girls. So this is one of the few that's just one gender. So, but, but that was my background. That was what I was most comfortable with. So that's what I started with. But since then, I've, I've tried to cover them as equally as I can. Just to get a sense of how juniors are different from the rest of the tour, because obviously we're very, you can say like, I sort of tell what time of year it is by what tournament's going on. It's not so much July to me right now as it is Atlanta, you know? It's like yeah. you sort of learn the rhythms of the calendar and you go with it. Um, for you, you obviously, you the four majors have junior tournaments too, but other than that, it's a pretty totally separate sort of circuit that juniors have. It definitely is. And yeah. one of the biggest times is in December when right. when you guys are basically off and that's when the Eddie Herr and the, the Orange Bowls are. Yeah. And those are, those are huge. So, you know, so, huge South Florida events that draw international players. And you know, are a really big deal. So yeah, it's definitely different. So what's 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 your year? Like, what what tournaments do you do in a given year? And also, uh, just kind of what is the landscape? I mean, like with respect to you know, like for us covering the pros, we're like, okay, there are the four majors, and then there's the ATP Masters tournaments and the WTA Premier Mandatories, and then a bunch of other you know smaller tournaments. So like on the junior level, what what is the landscape? I guess over the course of the twelve months, like what are your big tentpole tournaments that uh, you would want you know the the fan that maybe isn't paying attention to junior tennis to zone in on when they come around. Well, it's, I would definitely say um, the Eddie Hearn and the Orange Bowls, uh, just because, as I said, those tend to attract um, international players. They have reputations from way back, you know, when Andy Murray won it and when Roger Federer won it and, and all those kind of things. So th- those are when you first get to see the kids you know, at, at a young age and get kind of introduced to them. And the only thing, it's around the holidays, so a lot of people, you know, have other things going on and they, they want to take a break from tennis. But that's definitely, it's definitely one of the most important um, three, four weeks of, of um, my coverage is, is doing that. And, and then it kind of calms down a lot. Um, you know, there's Australia, but... It's it sort of harkens back. Australia for the juniors kind of harkens back to how it used to be for uh, the pros, where right. not very many people go because it's so far and it's so expensive. And Craig Kelly's not putting up any money to get the juniors there, so like he like he has done for for the pros to make it to an attractive tournament. So get on that, Craig Kelly. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of kids, it is never, it has always been the weakest tournament um, as far as fields, just because um, it's so far away. Europe, it's a long way from Europe. 
and um, a long way from the U.S. and and it, it tends to attract a lot a lot of the Asians, which you know they want to do, but um, it, it's not as strong as the other three majors just because of the of where it is and what it is. And you know after that there's just a constant you know then you start with the spring tournaments here, then it then it goes um, kind of over to Europe. Um, comes back right after Wimbledon, and then you have the the clay courts and the hard courts, which are right next to each other in the USTA calendar, and then uh, US Open, and then you know just big Grade One events. Those are kind of you know the premier events, I guess, on the junior the ITF Grade Ones, and especially the B ones because if you win those, they're close to a certain region. And you get a lot of points for those, and if you win those, that really boosts your your chance to play in a junior slam. So uh, those are kind of the things that that I look for to as far as major tournaments. Um, you know, I go to Carson in the Easter Bowl, which is now held at Indian Wells, just a few weeks after VMP um, is there. So that's very cool for the kids to have to have that experience. And then you know, it just kind of goes on through the summer and and into the fall. And then there's a big tournament in Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all places. And, you know, it's amazing some of the names that have won that with Eugenie Bouchard and Madison Keys and uh, Francis Siafo now. And, you know, all of a sudden you're getting, you're getting, it's, it hasn't been around maybe 15 years, but you, you can actually um, kind of look at a history of a tournament and say, wow, this is really actually from from the champions and has turned out to be a very important tournament. So, I guess how much when you're looking at cover when you're covering the juniors and sort of evaluating junior players, how much of it is you're looking at who you think might be a great pro one day, and how much are you looking at who's just the best now? Because that can be very different things. Yes, and I, I did find your conversation in, your, in the last uh, podcast last week uh, pretty interesting about you saying how much how tougher it is. I remember Courtney saying how tough it was uh, about Felix, to evaluate, right? you know, just any boy at at that age. And, yeah. yeah, you were talking about Felix, and and I, I actually I think it's it's really tough for the girls too. It, it just um, it's just such a physical game now, and I know that's a cliche, but it 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 just it is really hard to see. Once in a while, you think you can uh, get a glimpse of you know some special like competitive edge that maybe somebody had. And I guess I'll tell my uh, Jeannie Bouchard story. In uh, Tulsa, she was playing in the final. It was freezing cold, very unusual for Tulsa in the 40s. She had a horrible cold. You could hear her, you know packing for two, three days. She was way down in the final match. And somehow it would have been so easy just to kind of, you know, throw in the towel and say, you know, it's not my day. I feel like I feel terrible. The conditions are horrible, et cetera, et cetera. But somehow she found her way back to win that match. And, you know, maybe it's hindsight, but you kind of look back at that and say, you know, that's that's a pretty gritty thing for 15 I think she was 15 then for for her to do at that point you know maybe she really does you know want to be great and that's kind of I guess what you're always looking for it's somebody that that shows you know physically or mentally or you know just from their attitude that they really do uh, want to 
make the sacrifices that are necessary to to be a great tennis player. So that's that's kind of what I look for, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I know it when I see it or yeah. <laughs> that right. I can predict it. You know, going I mean, forward. Look, looking back on it, Colette, I mean, how much has the junior circuit changed over the course of the time that you've been covering it. I mean, not, not just in terms of like maybe structurally or um, organizationally, but just like how as juniors they've changed. I mean, I, I would assume that they're kind of like weirdly more professional now than they were maybe like a decade ago, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, no, I, I, I think that's a, that's a, a, a fair assessment. I, I think the parents take it maybe more seriously than they used to as well. I'm not sure what that is. Um, and again, I, I, I want to emphasize that I, though I cover international tournaments, um, my, you know, my strike zone is American juniors and, right. and, you know, I go to Wimbledon, but, and I, I cover the internationals in Florida and any place I, you know, that when they come to the States, but I, you know, I don't travel all over the world like you guys do. So most of what I see is is um, American juniors and American parents, and it, it does seem to, especially on the on the women's side, you get the sense that this is a sport for women, and that there is, you know, that they really um, believe that it's something that the daughters can excel at, and that it, it is a sport that they should take very seriously, and. You know that has its good sides and its bad sides, yeah. and I suppose like any any sport, whether it's you know gymnastics or swimming or anything, but tennis has such a high profile for women's sport that um, I, I do get a sense of that. But but on the other hand, I, it, it's just awesome for me coming from my age and coming from my generation to see girls that that being athletes is is you know, nothing to make a big deal about. I mean, they are, that's part of who they are. They don't apologize for it and they don't have, you know, there's not, it's just part of their life. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's a, a huge thing. That's great. <laughs> yeah. They're not, they're not like shrinking flowers or, you know, sort of things like, like they're, they're actually ambitious at, from such a young age, which for right. girls and, is, is and, not common. Yeah, and, and physically ambitious, which to me is even more, you know, not yeah. just intellectually ambitious or academically ambitious, but, you know, they, they want to be competitive, you know, athletically. And, I, you know, I, that, that's been a, a change, you know, maybe it's more than 10 years ago since that's really happened. But I was out when I first started covering it, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was like, wow, this is really great. You know, they, they sweat, they don't wear makeup and you know, they're fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's super. So you, you, yeah. You mentioned parents and I know parents in the junior ranks have been sort of to the extent they, that they make news, it's almost never good in terms of right, you know problematic right. parents and stuff, being around these kids and their parents and the sort of pressure and ambition that they have overall, if you to paint with a broad brush, if that's even possible, like how, how, what do you think is, is it a healthy sort of relationship that most tennis parents have towards the sport and their kids, or is it frequently problematic? No, I think um, on, on balance, it's, it's very positive. I, I think it, if it's handled correctly, and I do think there's a breaking in period, the 12 parents are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> parents of, of 10, 11, 12-year-olds all think that they're going to be 
um, you know, Roger Federer and Serena Williams. And it <laughs> takes them a few years to, you know, kind of adjust their expectations. And so I'm leaving them out <laughs> because <laughs> it, it, they have to learn and they have to learn to control themselves when they're watching their child. And they, you know, they have to learn how to deal with their child during that. But, but I think once you get through that and, I assume anybody who sticks with the sport, once they get through that, I, I think it's a very positive thing because, for one thing, it's something that they can do together. And I know a lot of adolescents that really aren't that interested in spending any time with their parents. And and actually, tennis can be a, a connection and a link that, that may not be there otherwise. And I I just know too many good tennis parents to, to know uh, you know, to say, oh, they're all nuts and they're all crazy. Um, I, I do think in anything, you know, if you want to be the best at something, you, you are you are going to have to do things that other people might think are a little bit odd. But on balance, I don't think most of that stuff is harmful. I mean, obviously, there are exceptions, and those exceptions are the ones that, as you mentioned, make the news. But on balance, I, I think it's I think it's a pretty positive thing. I, I just do think that um, maybe there's the emphasis on, on you know making sure that your kid gets into college or you know kind of the ulterior motives maybe aren't so good, but just the fact that you know playing and competing and and being in tournaments and putting yourself out there, I and. You know, some of these kids actually get up at like seven o'clock in the morning on a weekend and go out and play tennis. And, you know, I think we probably all know 13, 14, 15 year olds that <laughs> that are not in that category. So I, I think in general, it's, a, it's they're pretty admirable, both from the parents and the, the kids. When when you're covering the sport, I guess how because we I've do we both have done Courtney and I both on some juniors, but obviously mostly deal with the pros. But how and so but when we do when I do shift to juniors, I'm very conscious that when I'm doing an interview with the junior that I'm talking to a child for the most part, even if they're you know right. seem like mature and have a, a clothing sponsor already and stuff. There's a, a degree of difference with that when you're covering the kids that you cover, how conscious are you or protective of them? Are you knowing that you're dealing with, you know, teenagers? And like you said, you go down to possibly even like 12 year olds at some point. Right. And, and how, how much slack do you give them or how much protection or everyone phrase it? How, how, uh, how conscious or guarded are you about writing about and talking with these, these kids knowing how young they are? Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate, um, you bringing that up because I, I do think that that's always important to remember. And I, I probably, am, even though I don't have any children of my own, I, I'm quite protective of all of them. Um, I, you know, I, I have journalism training, so I understand that I need to uh, quote, you know, what they say as, as it's been said. Um, and you know, sometimes I don't even say you do mean this, right? And you know, but that's part of their learning experience as well. Um, and <laughs> they, they, there aren't that many incidents. There's not that much. Most of the time, that you know, they're free with what they say, and um, they either analyze the match or they don't say much. But 
either way, I'm, I'm able to, you know, sort of work it into the story and, and that sort of thing. But, but yeah, the, I think the hiking part of it, you know, the, the, I'm going, this person is going to be, um, you know, top 10 someday or, you know, I, any kind of stuff like that. I, I'm just very uncomfortable with that because I don't really see the upside of it for the, for the, um, kid. I, part of it, I, I started this, what basically when Donald Young was, um, a 14 year old and turning pro at that time. And that just seemed to go so badly. Um, you know, just, it just seemed to just not go well. So I, you know, I've always kind of said, well, that's not the template that you kind of want to, to follow. So, uh, you know, I, I just don't see how it, um, helps anybody. I, you know, I did understand your point of when you mentioned, um, you know, Francis and, and that kind of thing. And it, yeah, you don't really know if it, if it's doing any, any real harm, but I, I don't, I, I don't know. I just haven't seen that it's, that it's very much more than the journalists calling attention to themselves when they make, and, yeah. you know, people want to be like the first right on the yeah, bandwagon, yeah, the one that, that, that that's exactly. driving it. I mean, go, I mean, oh, towards yeah. that, you know, like when you look at how, you know, those of us who don't cover juniors all the time, but jump in every time for whatever reason, you know, an American mm-hmm. breaks through or, or something right. impressive happens on the junior side. I mean, when the, the mainstream media covers the juniors, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like, what are your pet peeves? Like when you read it, you're like, Oh, not this again. <laughs> like, you know, like, uh, like, you know, they, you know, other than just getting facts completely wrong, which I understand we do all the time when it comes to the juniors. Um, or at least I do yeah. maybe not. Then, Jun- junior info is hard to find. I mean, yeah, it's it hard. Is. to It's yeah. hard to find and verify. And poor Colette has to deal with like a lot of pinging email addresses or emails yeah. from me, uh, trying to clarify <laughs> things. But I, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like what, what are kind of the trends or themes that you see or, or myths that, that to you are, are completely debunked that still, you know, the mainstream media peddles? Uh, one of them that bothers me is that if you, if you win a junior slam, that, that doesn't mean anything. It does. Uh, first of all, you've won a junior slam and I, I don't, you can't really detract from that. It's, yeah. it's not as if, um, you know, if you then don't go on and win the main draw of Wimbledon after you've won the Wimbledon Juniors, that you somehow failed. I just find that extremely distasteful. And that's out there with media and just fans. It's like, And I think the players oh, you know, even think that on some level. Like, as I saw when Riley Opelka, yeah. when he won Wimbledon, his reaction was so small. And I was like, yeah. dude, you just won Wimbledon. More than likely... <laughs> Like honestly, with all respect to his prospects, more than likely this is the peak of your tennis career. So yeah, enjoy it. And, exactly, and and I, you know I totally admire their ambitions, and they're saying this isn't enough, and I you know I want to keep getting better, <laughs> and so and so forth and so on. But you know you really do have to have to realize that, that that's a special place, and I I really. That, that bothers me. Plus, it's, it's basically not true. I mean, it's very rare when uh, when somebody totally flames out. I mean, it, it, right. It like just... if you win a junior slam, more often than not, I think the percentages will say and the data will say you will have a career as a professional tennis player. 
Right. You may not right. win things or, you know, be like the next greatest, you know, player, but you will, you can put together a professional career. Right. Yeah. Right. And there are, the girls, there yeah. are obviously are exceptions to that, but it, you know, I, I don't think that the theme should be that, oh, this doesn't mean anything for, from anybody. I, I just, I, I find that kind of annoying. And then I, I, what I find equally annoying and, and kind of the opposite um, in contrast to that is when, when you'll read some local newspaper um, about in, in Britain is just Great Britain is <laughs> oh, crazy we know. about this, about, we know. <laughs> about some, you know, totally, um, you know, barely national level player that they write a huge feature on about how, you know, they're going to be great because, you know, they just won the county 12s and unders or something. And so, I mean, they, they seem to, on the other end, that end, they seem to lack the perspective of just how good you have to be. Um, you know, to actually even be a great ju- a world-class junior yeah. and then to, you know, kind of extrapolate that onto right. the, you know, next Andy Murray. It's just hilarious to me. You, <laughs> you mentioned Donald Young earlier. It's a sort of cautionary tale. Uh, if, if you were talking to a parent of like a, someone who has like a 10-year-old who they think can be really good and might actually be really good, um, mm-hmm. who... It could thinks that they have the next Roger Federer on their hands, or even the next, you know, Andy Roddick, or whatever, or even the next, I don't know, uh, Dennis Kugla on their hands. To put it more uh-huh. more modestly, uh, what, right. what what advice would you give them as as someone who's seen so many people go through this process? What are the sort of do's and don'ts uh, that, you, that you would put, it, put there? The first thing I would tell them is, there's no hurry. And, and I think that's one of the, the great thing that's happened in the last 10 years um, is that we have seen so many players extend their – it used to be if, if by 28 you were on the absolute end of your career in tennis. And now that has shifted, I, I think, dramatically. Yeah. And I don't think um, that there's any hurry anymore. I don't. Uh, you know, unless there's a huge financial package out there and you need the money, there's really no reason, you know, to turn pro or to look at that. And and you don't get that many offers anymore. It's not like in the old days where, you know, everybody was looking for somebody. Things have changed in the business and, and you're, you're basically, you know, just hoping. And I, I just don't think there's a hurry in that. You, you will not get worse playing juniors and you will not get worse going to college um, if you truly want to be, to be getting better. So I, I would really tell them, you know, make sure you keep all your options open, keep going to school, um, you know, make sure that you get all the, the uh, classes that you need to, to go to college if you want to do that. And it, college is not a dead end. It, it is a viable way. I mean, for, for how many years now it's been, you know, isn't there at, at the top of the game? And, you know, he, w- he went to college for four years. Yeah. And I, I, just, I just think that the, that the hurry part of it, if, if you haven't proven yourself you know, by age 19 on the pro tour that, you know, nothing's ever going to come of your tennis career. It's just, it's basically, um, you know, I think that's a myth that, that maybe um, has 
has finally been, you know, put to rest. And now that we're seeing, you know, so many great players uh, play in well into the 30s. Let's talk about college tennis, if you can, for Bix. I know you cover that as well, too, and the decision to go mm-hmm. pro. Um, talk about, I guess, how you got into covering college tennis. It's not really junior tennis, per se. Um, and then uh, how, and your thoughts on all the different changes in it, and I guess all the rule changes that keep seeming to be coming every year. They seem to want to yeah. rebuild college tennis dramatically. Um, right. Yeah. So- I, just, I just started it because it seemed like a pretty natural progression uh, for me from the juniors. And um, it's it's actually a fantastic product if, if you like, you know, a team atmosphere. And, I, you know, it's just like a lot of fun. I, I happen to like college sports. Not everybody does, but... Um, you know, there's just that affiliation and everybody gets so excited. And I mean, it's, it's great tennis and there's tremendous pressure. Um, you get to see how people handle that when there's the last match on. I, you know, I, I do think it's, it's an awesome, you know, product that we have here that's kind of unique to the United States. Um, I, all the changes they've made, you know, I, I I do not like NOAD tennis. Um, I never liked it. I didn't like it when the juniors went to NOAD in doubles. Um, I guess I probably didn't like it when the ATP did, though I understood the reasons for that. But, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm just not a NOAD person. I just watched a game today uh, that went uh, 10 deuces in um, a boy saved eight break points. And to me, that that's part of what makes tennis a great sport yeah, I agree. so i don't want to I, I don't want to go to noad i don't want to go to you know the world team tennis kind of thing and i i respect the college game too much for that but there are a lot of people that think that that long matches and many of them do go three hours are just not you know something that anybody's going to ever watch there seems to be so a, re- a real a real idea in college tennis that if they just changed one thing it would still be making millions of dollars as a, as a, as a revenue sport, as a spectator sport. Right. And I, as someone who's around pro tennis, I just right. don't see you that. Know, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I don't know if that comes from being in, in, you know, big, you know, budgets like Alabama football and, you know, Duke basketball and places like that. I, I don't know where that kind of mindset comes from, but I, I think if you have any understanding of tennis, you just know that it, that you know, making any sort of revenue off it is, is not likely, and and probably what you really want to do is, is to uh, produce uh, better, you know, student athletes and better tennis players, and and maybe that should be the focus and not the fans. Um, I I've heard it described as a as a you know as a student athlete or a fan, and which one do you want to appeal to? And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be on the student-athlete side, but there are a lot of people that think that the fans are the ones that, that need to be setting the agenda. So what, what, well, what, the, fan, the fans will pay the bill. That's true. That, you're right. So that, I that's, guess. I yeah. guess. In, but, in uh, some sense, you, need, but you need the yeah. student-athletes to show up to make the sport relevant. Yeah, you want I mean, to keep attracting the best <laughs> players. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting, right. Colette, because um, I actually had a conversation with Mallory Burdett a couple of days ago. Um, oh, met up, great. yeah. Sat down with her for a little bit down in Stanford and caught up in everything and and talked a lot about you know uh, her career, uh, obviously mm-hmm. at Stanford and her kind of one year on the WTA tour and then now obviously she's she's put that behind her and she's she's moving forward and has no longer a WTA player. 
just kind of a bit of a catch up. And it was very interesting to get her perspective on the college game as it compares to kind of juniors and then going pro. And this idea of, well, you know, for so long, it's all about you, right? Like when you play the junior Uh circuit and everything, then you go to college and it's all about the team. Yeah. And so you kind of get accustomed to that. And then you go to go pro and you have to go back to being, having everything be about you. And some players are, or I'm sorry, some people are hardwired for that. Like this idea of like, it's all about me. Uh, mm-hmm. And some players aren't. And I think that, and this isn't anything Mallory said, but this is something was my kind of take when I kind of walk away was that she wasn't really built for the spotlight is on me. It's all about me. I have to be concerned about me. Like she like really flourished as like a team captain at Stanford and, right. and taking right. care of everyone else. And so I don't know. I, I was just curious about what your thoughts are about that about, cause I totally agree with you that with, players careers extending much longer now that there's really no reason why you shouldn't go to college if you're on the fence um, right. at all yeah if you're on the fence right if you're winning like all four junior majors uh you know like go fine turn pro but like if you're right. on the fence at all um there's no downside whatsoever but this right. was kind of one of those things where I was like well maybe I guess I could see that like maybe if you were just kind of on the singular all about me track and you never had to deviate from it like you would have processed it better. But then when you went to the team environment and then went back, I don't know. I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are just generally about that. Yeah. I, I think that that can be an issue. I, I do think though, that it, it's probably, even if you don't um, really flourish in that, as long as you have some interest in the academic side of life and, and there are, to be honest, there are some kids that, that really probably shouldn't go to college, even if they're Fair not enough. that good, <laughs> yeah. because they, they really are not, you know, intellectually curious enough to do that, and it would be a struggle. I mean, you know, if they're good enough, somebody's going to help them along, and, and maybe the exposure will kind of change their attitudes and their views of education and that sort of thing, but but it isn't, it really isn't for everybody. Um, but I would say it's more. It, I do understand the individual part, and but but there are a lot of ways where you can be um, still focus on yourself, and the team. You know, the team part of it can add to your, you know, sort of your resume and to what what you want. But I, it, you don't have to change your personality, really. I, I think, and I think if you get with a good coach. The, the, they'll recognize that 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 you can't ask um, you can everybody wants a team player but what you're doing for the team is basically winning and that doesn't change whether right. you know wherever it is you still have to beat the guy across across the net so as long as you maintain that competitive part of it um, I, I think most of them can handle um, the kind of player that has been sort of me first throughout the juniors but on the other hand yeah there are other people then that, that just are not that interested in in not having a collaborative um and that's one of the problems with tennis period um is attracting younger kids is that it's so much easier to be on the soccer team the basketball team the baseball team because 
you know, you've got a whole team around you. You can yeah. still yep. go to regular school and, and you know, right. Yeah. I mean, it's all part of the, of the community where tennis is really kind of because it's individual, you, you don't have that same sort of thing. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that it, it probably, you know, in the United States, which has so many team sports, especially for boys, it's always going to take a special kind of, of, a boy to want to play tennis. So you have been around the college game and the pro game a lot. I remember the one time I think we were at the same college event together was at UVA a few years ago right? uh-huh. at the yeah. at the boy at the men's indoors there. Right. And all I remember you talking to someone from like USC and everyone's coming up to you being like, oh hey Colette, hi Colette, and you were like a rock star there. You're one of the <laughs> I think you are one of the very few tennis writers who's ever had a parody account made of you. I mean you you're a thing very much in this world. So how do you, how do you handle, you know, how do you cultivate relationships with these people and how do you sort of handle being the person? Cause you are the junior reporter and it's sort of, if you, what you say, I think from the outside anyway, seems like gospel. And so you have a lot of power in this smaller pond, I guess, to, to make the sport, how you cover it, how you want it. And, and help shape it. Yeah. And help shape it. And do people, appreciate what you do you get the sense in the junior level that you're giving them in college that you're giving them ink they wouldn't otherwise have I I think so but I I probably got a little bit of a um you know an idea that you know when college tennis they didn't nobody talked to me I didn't know anything about you know a lot of these changes I I heard heard rumors when I was talking to individual coaches with that but then all of a sudden it happened and um, you know, I came out immediately against it and all that. And basically, um, rather than change anything, it, it just sort of alienated me from that community, which, which I find really, you know, it, it, that's hard for me because, as you said, I, I know and admire so many of the coaches and the, the players that, you know, it, it's really difficult to, to have that kind of, I don't know, I split, I guess it was, over something that I didn't think, you know, was in any way necessary. But, again, that's, you know, I don't have control over that. But I thought, you know, maybe I could have some influence, but I I don't really think that I did um, in that regard. But as far as juniors, you know, I I do try – people do come up to me, you know, that I haven't met and – say you know I enjoy reading your blog and that's you know that's great I I do appreciate the position and I do take it seriously I do try and work you know really hard about finding things out into going to tournaments not just you know I think it's important to be out there and have informal conversations and, and to actually see the matches and that sort of thing so and, you know it, I I think it's great I but I love it I you know, it's like fun for me. Yeah. No, and, and <laughs> people, that's fair to say. Talking about seeing you around, I mean, you were very easily spottable on tour because, I mean, I think I think Nick McCarver was telling me your nickname is not is not Colette Lewis, but Cool Hat Lewis because of, <laughs> because of the uh, straw hat yes. with, the, with the leopard print ribbon, I guess it is, on the, yes. on the side. So, I mean, if anyone sees you at a tournament, they should definitely say hi because you're worthy of absolutely, appreciation. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I I really um, enjoy talking to people because I I know that 
that they're really into junior tennis and and you know that that makes them very sympathetic characters for me yeah there you go talking about junior tennis let's shift a little bit i guess to what we have going on this week in kalamazoo which and i guess can you sort of explain why it's seen as like this seems like a really huge quarter quell sort of thing going on with about as loaded a lineup for kalamazoo as i think there might have maybe has been in generations Say. Yes, I, I think that's true. And of course, with benefit of hindsight, it's a lot easier to say, oh, that was a great year. I mean, we don't have that, that benefit right now, but right. we do have the French junior champion, the Wimbledon junior champion, the number one um, ITF world junior here. And those aren't just the name standing. names. Those are that's Tommy Paul, French champion, Riley Opelka, Wimbledon champion, Taylor Fritz, world number one. Number one. And, then and you none also, of those are the top seeds. Right, so and you also have Tiafo and Kozlov, right? Right, Tiafo and Kozlov and Michael Mull, who just won a Futures. And, you know, you can just kind of go down the list. And I I had looked through um, so doing some research. And, again, that that's one of the challenges of being a junior tennis person is that there aren't a lot of archives out there. Nobody's keeping track of things. And, you know, people complain about lack of stats and in you know ATP and WTA, but I mean we don't even have like a list of winners in all <laughs> things, so <laughs> it's a li- it's 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 pretty challenging. But I I could not find a time um, when we ever had anybody who was ranked in the two uh, hundreds in ATP play this tournament. So and that's um, the offer. You know that's Francis. So uh, obviously that puts him in a you know in a special category, and then. You know, we had Tommy Paul and, and uh, Stefan Kozlov are both top 500, which is very rare. When Donald Young played here, he wasn't even top 500. So um, it's just a – they demonstrated on the junior level and also with, with pro success that, you know, this is a pretty special group. And what makes it special, I think, is unlike when it was, you know, Ryan Harrison or Jack or Donald or Sam Query. There is a whole bunch of them. And so the spotlight has never shown on one of them for too long. Um, and they have never gotten tagged. It's, I mean, people are still tagging them, but it's, it gets it, spread it's around, not, yeah. yeah, it's spread around and it's not, it, it, they're tagging them, but in, inappropriately if, if you're picking out Francis yeah. from that group, because everybody in that group has beaten Francis or vice versa. So they, they're not, you know, they don't view him as some level that, that they're not. And yeah, there's no al- there's no true alpha. No, there is not. Um, yeah. You know, and obviously if you're the number one seed here, that's great. But it also comes with, you know, the pressure of, oh, okay, now I'm supposed to beat all these guys. I'm the one with the, you know, 280 um, ATP ranking. And then all of a sudden, you know, these guys are like, yeah, but we know we yeah. can beat you. <laughs> that's so, important. I, think, I mean, that, I that community what is what it, makes a difference, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I really do, and you hear that all the time, but you don't really realize how how important it is to have so many um, uh, of them like that, and, they, and they've really been taking turns um, doing great things. So I, yeah. that's a good sign. Now, I, you know, I would, I would be crazy to ever say, no, it's him. It's him. It's him. That's yeah. going to be great. Cause like, <laughs> you just don't know. It's just, you know, the 17 and 18 years old. It's just, 
you don't know. I think one of the things that I've gotten put on, I get the sense, I've looked through all of our archives, but I get the sense that I've done more writing about the juniors, especially American juniors, especially the boys for the New York Times than we've probably done ever in our turn in our yeah. paper's history because there is this huge what we see as a huge uh hole at the top of the pro right. game and this huge hunger for a top uh, american man to come along and save us and save us from you know the ghost of andy roddick winning an 03 being our last one and that's gonna be our fred perry right. it looks like at some point right hopefully it's not that bad but um but <laughs> and, so, and I was talking to Taylor Fritz about that, and I think maybe Kozlov too, and they seem to recognize that there was more people looking younger down the ladder for the future than there ever has been, because yeah. before everyone was happy with the top, and now and there wasn't any real, oh, you know, the next people will come along, fine, and now people are sort of searching. Do you get the sense that among parents, coaches, anybody, players, that there's a sense that the juniors are getting more attention now american boys juniors particularly because of the lack of a real slam champ superstar on the men's side yeah i think so in as much as that the mainstream media pays any attention to juniors at all which you know it, it isn't that they don't pay that much attention to it um not that there's a lot of mainstream media that covers nothing but tennis anyway you guys know that yeah it's, it's you know it's a very few I, I do think in the States, um, it's even fewer, um, it's, you know, tennis writing is very localized here where you have a tournament and you have sports writers who write about their local tournament, but they, you, you don't get the sense that, that they're sort of a national tennis reporter. Um, you know, there are a few, but I, I don't think, you know, if there are, they they just basically see that yeah we haven't had any any great men, so is that ever going to change? And who's responsible for that? And I I went through this exact same thing except when uh, McEnroe and and Connors were phasing out. Everybody was wringing their hands. Now we got very lucky that it wasn't it, there wasn't that ten year gap before Agassi Samp, you know all those guys came around. So. But there was some serious hand-wringing going on that. And this is right. just extended uh, a little bit longer. But, and you know, I'm not in any way comparing this group with that one because that was 1987 here. We had um, Courier, Chang, Sampras, Wheaton, Al Parker. I mean, it was just an unbelievable field. In retrospect, I don't think you can say that, you know, this group is going to win 20-plus slams like that <laughs> generation yeah. did but um you know it's a different time there's a, just a lot more uh, global attention to the game but i do th- you know i i do think that there is you know people are, are searching for it and you know i i guess i am too i you know i i would like to see that as well i i would you know love to see an american man won a grand slam do you get the sense that, it, that it's actually the opposite then for the girls that you know they're i guess on on the whole the junior girls on the american side haven't been uh i guess as successful as as the junior guys like right now but uh, barring right now, a few yeah. things yeah but uh you know that even even when taylor was winning and was number one and you know everything was cc and all of these uh, the current trend right now i mean on the pro level 
I know I can speak this for myself being someone who covers mm-hmm. it, that I'm kind of like, it's cool. I've got like my current generation. I've got my future generation. Like, you know, there's enough to write about right now that that when it comes to the juniors, I will recognize uh, when they do something great. But mm-hmm. there is also kind of a little bit of a hands-off approach to it as well, where it's like, but if they don't do great, or if there isn't like this slew of like four Americans in the top 10 or something that mm-hmm. I'm not going to really lose sleep over that either, yeah. because it's in the short term uh, or medium term. Uh, I'm good. Yeah. Compare the, like, atten- compare the attention that like Tiafo's gotten with Luisa Chirico, which is almost nothing. right. Chirico's a great example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or right. Grace Min. Right. Exactly. Grace right. Min. Kat Stewart, you know, no, no one knows about yeah. her really outside of like hardcore right. people now. Yeah. Right. No, no, that's definitely true that that there there is so much. Um, and, and of course, with Serena uh, on top, there, there's just there's not that much room for a lot of other people, not just in tennis. But I mean, what you write about Serena, because, yep. you know, she's the big story. And right. so, yeah, you know, you've got Sloan and you've got Madison and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it, there's no, there's not that search. There's not that that okay. We've got to you know find the next one, or you know it's going to be a disaster at the next U.S. Open. Like yeah, I think yeah, it's a two-edged sword though. I mean, I, I think it'd be nice for Louisa to get you know and, and Kat to get a little bit more publicity, but for sure, you know, I mean, it, it just you you have to do. I've always. I always say you have to do it by accomplishment. You can't do it by potential. And I, that's just, you know, that you just have to wait until they do something and then well, you yeah. celebrate it. That, that's the, that's you, the cruelty of this sport, which is that, you know, it's kind of a, what have you done for me lately sort of situation. Yeah. And, you know, you got to win. If you don't win, we can't really write about you. But if right. you win, then we have no choice but to write about you. <laughs> That's kind of the way that it goes. Yeah. When, because you so, me- you mentioned the sort of boys question and sort of hinted at this and the world getting bigger and all these other things. It's something I get asked as a tennis writer constantly. I'm sure Courtney, you do too. Like, why is there no top American man now? Do you have Do you have a, a stock answer for that question that you use? Because if so, I would love to use it too. Because I'm so sick of answering this question. <laughs> Whatever Colette says, that's going to be what I co-sign from now on. <laughs> no, I, I'm curious what you say that, that that tennis is a much bigger sport uh, in most of the countries that you go to, right? Yeah, and, um, and boys have more options in the U.S. than they do other places. And they do, yeah. and they and as I mentioned earlier, they have team options, yeah. which in in our society is great. Now maybe with football. Um, you know, having its issues with with the concussions and and that kind of thing. Yeah, we got to get those football kids. Yeah, that, that there's there's a chance for tennis, but um, just the, the way that um, sports is structured in this country at the high school level, it's just really really hard um, to pull great athletes away from the sports that they can play, stay in school, have regular friends, and travel with teams if they need to do that. So. Um, I, I just think that's always going to be a constant struggle. I really do. Yeah. I, I, I'm actually, I, I guess you can't be satisfied with, with the way things are compared to the way they used to be. But I, I, I do think it's amazing that we get the athletes that we do in the sport just because um, the very, you know, the cost of it, the individual nature of it, 
is, is just pretty overwhelming. And just the fact that the structure is very difficult for people to grasp. It's not like you can throw, throw them into a, a coach that's, that's done this for 20 years at the high school level and that they know the drill, they know how, how everything works, and the kid just is a cog in that wheel. It's not quite that way in tennis. Um, as it as it wouldn't be in golf or you know kind of other individual sports, but right. I, yeah. And what I always say is that if you look internationally, like in in America, there isn't a single sport that is as big domestically as soccer is in every other country in the world. So like in in most other countries, it's kind of like okay, go be a soccer player, or else mm-hmm. here is a you know a kind of a bunch of different sports that you could play. Whereas here, it's like, go be one of four different types of athletes. At least. Yeah. Right? For the guys. At least, yeah. right? So you're talking right. football, baseball, basketball, hockey. Uh, soccer's getting more and more Soccer's more getting more and more popular. Yeah. But uh, so, and then there are these tertiary sports. So it's like, it's more, di- yeah, that's what you're saying in terms of like the options. But I just kind of feel like people take for granted this idea, this fact that in America, our sports system especially when you factor in the college, the collegiate level with the NCAAs is completely unique to any other country in the world. Right. right. And so the expectation that our best athletes uh, are going to be playing any one of like the second tier sports, any, you know, second or or below uh, is kind of, you just don't think that that's actually going to happen. Like the, the, you know, whereas like in the other, in other countries, there's a finite number of soccer players. Like if you, you could be a top athlete and still like pick another sport and like dominate that sport. Whereas here it's like across four sports or five sports, whatever it is, it's, it's much more right. difficult. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that for sure. Some, some speed round sort of questions for you as we sort of wrap this up. What do you make of the big push USDA was doing a while ago and other countries have done too? the whole 10 and under puffy balls, quick start tennis, whatever you want to call that. How is that received among the junior community? Also, and I guess, what do you think of it? um, I I think it it is a good idea that was not um, implemented in the right fashion. In that it's um, aged rather than skill. Um, I I think. Ah, yeah. Yeah, they they put numbers on it, and there are nine year olds that don't need it that have to play it, and there are you know, 14 year olds that need it, that don't have to play it. And, it, you know, tennis skill is really not um, by age and it, it shouldn't be. I mean, certainly there's a, a bottom end, but they don't even really go into that, you know, two, three years old, whatever it is. That That's not what this program is for. It's to get, you know, kids playing and, and comfortable um, hitting a ball and having success doing that with the with the shorter courts and the rackets and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But if if they would if they would do that by skill set and in other words you take a, a simple test and see what you can do, it doesn't matter how old you are. Then you go into this group or you go into that group or you go into the other group. Yeah. And that's not how it's set up now. So I, I that I think has been a mistake, but I, I don't think that there's ever any harm in somebody um, you know, playing ten and under tennis. It's just that they may be too advanced for it um, when they're forced to play it, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And then last sort of thing I have in my mind is, is obviously a longer answer, but the main one of the main topics in junior boys development, everything is USTA, which we have weirdly not said almost ever this entire conversation, those four letters. How much <laughs> how much uh, credit and or blame do they deserve do you think in general or specifically for junior lack of success or 
having no top pros now on the men's side and how much credit do they deserve for this upcoming group now? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I, I, my, my gut reaction is to say they don't deserve any blame and they don't deserve any credit. Um, and But that's probably not entirely true. I do, I do think that you can do some, you can do damage to prospects, but you're never going to keep um, a genuine champion from from getting to where he needs or she needs to go. They're going to find a way to do it with or without the federation. Um, what you can basically do is is just kind of facilitate um, a, a lot of players playing and a lot of um, interaction between those players. And that's all you can hope for. But I, I agree with what Martin Blackman said when he took the job is that the champions have the outliers and no federation is going to produce a, a Federer or a Nadal. That just isn't how it it's works. It's never happened. Yeah. So it, it never has and it, ne- it never will. It, ta- it takes something a lot more than that. And I, but, you know, on the other hand, I think they can do damage if, if they, if they don't support, if, if they alienate uh, coaches, if if they're seen as, um, you know, uh, just somebody who hands out money, I, I do think that that can have a, a detrimental effect. But I, I I wouldn't, you know, it's tempting to say that they, because many of these boys do cha- train with the USDA, and it's important to say that. And, yeah. and you know, for a lot of, but, their whole academy idea has, has pretty much been discredited. You know, that they don't want kids now anymore, you know, doing the live-in dorm kind of thing. And, you know, a lot of people were skeptical, including myself, when they announced that as being one of their initiatives. So, I, you know, I, I do think that they've, they've, they've made mistakes um, and... Um, hopefully they're trying to rectify them and by kind of going back to where we'll just help you, but stay with your coach, stay home, um, you know, do what you need to do and we'll do what we can to assist you. So that's kind of, I mean, it's a long answer to a very complicated question because a federation's role in, in tennis is just, you know, it's pretty mind-boggling when you try and break it down. Yeah. So. Final point, just because I'm very, very curious. And I think I've always wanted to ask you this, and I just never got around to it. Um, <laughs> okay. But regardless of success, once they, you know, graduated to pros or went to college or all these sorts of things, like, who are the players that, when you watched as juniors, impressed you the most? Michelle Larcher de Brito. Okay. Okay. Any reason? And... Any reasons why for her? Because she obviously has a interesting sort of reputation on the tour now. Uh, now, but back then she she hits the heck out of the ball. She fought like crazy, and she was just she was dynamite. I mean, you just could not see how she could, you know, not make it. I, at least I could. You know, right. I, I guess that was a while ago. Maybe I wouldn't think the same now, but I, I tend to think I would because she seemed to have, you know, that a, a huge, um, I, I mean, she she never had a lot of variety and she, her serve was never good. But I mean, you know, there's a lot of top 20 women that would be in that category. So I, I just, I thought she was going to be great. Um, I, I probably wrote on my blog back in 2005 that I thought, 
<clears throat> Bernard Tomich would be win Wimbledon someday. Um, still could. He still, still could. He still could. No one's <laughs> necessarily was, writing that was, kid off. He was so amazing when he was 12. I, I just, I, <clears throat> I can't tell you how amazing. Uh, uh, well, I guess you could imagine how he could be when he just had this tremendous self-possession and none of the kids had any idea where he was going to go with the ball when he hit it. And, you know, he was, he was like, he was miles ahead of everybody else at that age. So how much, how, was, how much, do you, was pretty amazing. how much do you follow the pros, I guess, in terms of, and when you watch the pros, do you always, do you look at it from a lens of this, this former junior is now doing X, I guess. Yeah, I I always I, I always do. I try and watch enough uh, pro tennis to to kind of understand what it takes, you know, to be at that level. Um, but a lot of the guys that are at the top now, with the exception of Andy Murray, I never saw play as juniors. I mean, that's mm. how old they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, I never saw Federer play as a junior. I never well, I, Nadal didn't play juniors, and uh, Djokovic. Uh, didn't play very many juniors, you know, at the age where I would, he would have been, you know, in the States playing junior tournaments. So I, you know, I saw Murray when he won uh, U.S. Open and I never thought he was going to amount to anything. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, it just, that, that's always been, you know, a great lesson for me. I, I never saw, you know, everybody's always talking about weapons. Well, Andy Murray at 17 might've been kind of hard to see what those are going to be. Um, you know, now we all know what they are, but that's, again, that's yeah. insight. So, yeah. well, and also so much of the work that he did post to juniors into trans, yeah, you know, physically, you know, yeah. was not anything when he was a junior. And of course, you know, that got much better and, but he was always fast and I just never, you know, people never kind of consider that, um, your movement. I think it's, that's coming around more now. I, I think people look for movement more now than they did 10 years ago when they were looking for a huge serve and, yeah. you know, a Sampras kind of game, which definitely seemed to be a trap that the American juniors fell into anyway. When you look at players who got, built up his next big ones when Roddick was doing well. It seemed to be all trying to put them in a Roddick mold, which I don't think, which yeah. how the game changed, I don't think worked at all. Um, right, yeah. right. And That's ha- true. Any other ju- and you see the needle swinging the other way now. Because with the, this group of kids that are coming up, that's they don't necessarily play... Uh, you know, that as Ben likes to say, corn fed style tennis um, yeah. <laughs> that we're used to seeing with like Andy and Jack. I mean, they, they right. all seem to have a little bit more variety, a little bit more speed, kind of yeah. more wiry, whether or not physically they develop into something else, who knows. But um, yeah, none of them seems to have like, other than Riley, obviously, like have that massive right. cannon. Right. Yeah. Right. Did you, did you, I'm just curious, this probably is something listeners are interested in. Other top players who you have impressions of? As, had impressions of his juniors. Did you see like Sharapova when she was a junior? Uh, no, I didn't. Okay. Um, she she kind of broke through. I think uh, she, she stopped so through. young. Yeah. Yeah. She, at, at seventeen, when she was seventeen, I was just kind of really starting to to follow it, um, and she was already winning Wimbledon at that time. So, um, I, Vika was always um, amazing as a junior, and I always thought that she that. And it's a funny thing because she was such a good doubles player yeah. um, in the juniors, and she always played doubles. 
Um, and I always thought, you know, yeah, she, she hits the ball, you know, great and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, she won junior slams, but I thought, you know, maybe that doubles thing, um, you know, really tells you something about, about her chances, you know, at the next level. I think if everybody, then, if everybody in WTA singles played doubles full time, I think she'd be easily top three in the world. Most underrated hands on the WTA. Yeah. yeah totally. I mean, yeah, just an incredible sure. volleyer. Yeah, so I I always had had kind of thought, you know, I guess again in hindsight that that she would um, that she had a, a, a special facet or you know kind of that's what you're kind of always looking for is just some little edge that a player may have. Um, so yeah, I was always impressed impressed with her uh, when I saw her for sure. Cool. Thank you very much, Colette. We, we've been very impressed by all of this ourselves. Um, thank you. Yeah, enjoy. Uh, thanks very much for being with us, first of all, and enjoy Kalamazoo. Yeah, and everybody who's listening to you should follow along, first of all, on your Twitter at Zoo Tennis and uh, and your and your site and everything. You do all sorts of good stuff, and this is a big time of year for you coming up. So, lots more. Well, thanks. To become. I, yeah, I'm so excited you invited me because I I'm an avid listener of the podcast. So Aww. it's so nice to be a guest. We're flattered. Do you have, we'll see you in New York, right? We'll see you in New York for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Do you, do you have okay. a do you have an outro song in mind? Oh gosh, you know how could I not think of? I know that? you should, you should have known this was coming. You should have known of all people that this question have. was coming. Oh no. Okay, I have I have one for you, Ben. Okay. You have to have to find the Glenn Miller. I've got a gal in Kalamazoo. Song oh god, that sounds perfect. I'll, Perfection. I'll do my best to find that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Colette. All right. Thank you, guys. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I got a In Kalamazoo. Don't want to boast, but I know she's a toast of Kalamazoo. So thank you very much, Colette and Kalamazoo. And Follow her along at Zoo Tennis on Twitter and on her blog, ZooTennis.com. Uh, thank you all for listening to us as well. You can follow us when you're not listening by following on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. And you can like us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can send us emails, questions, comments, thoughts. Our email address is no challenges remaining at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and any other podcast platform of your choice with our RSS feed or whatever else. Leave us reviews on iTunes. Tell your friends, family, anyone you know, you like, you think might like us. Always happy to spread the gospel of us. And yeah, that'll do it for us for this show. We're going to wrap up with our rant corner. Courtney, do you have anything that's getting you hot under the collar in the August summer heat? Well, let's be fair. This segment is actually a rant slash rave. Right. So you have a rave. So I have a rave. Oh, good. Okay. I have a rave. I'm I'm all about positivity right now. Good for you. Yeah, I know. It's a new thing. I'm trying it on, seeing how it fits. My rave is for a movie that uh, I watched last week that I was totally blown away by and is hands down the best movie I've seen in 2015. And the only caveat that I will add to that is that I haven't seen Matt, uh, uh, Fury Road, or not Fury Road, uh, the Mad Max movie. Um, I haven't seen Inside Out, and I haven't seen Magic Mike. So setting those three aside, which is Magic may... Mike really a possible contender for best movie of the year? It's I've from different people that I've heard. Yes, okay. not in like an actual like 
ooh, it's like cinema verite. Like, not like in that way, but like in a like, you're going to have a super awesome time at the movie theater, like that kind of way. But um, so I haven't seen any of those. I'll probably end up seeing them on planes. But um, Clouds of Sils Maria is a movie that was uh, debuted at the Cannes Film Festival last year and just got released um, in the States in April. Uh, I say just. April to me is like very recent given my movie watching uh, stuff, but it's on, it's available for rent on Amazon and stuff like that, uh, which is how I watched it. But this movie was phenomenal. I have, let's see, I watched it for the first time on, I want to say Thursday. It's now Sunday. I've, I've seen it like seven times already. Yeesh. Yeah, like, and Ben knows this, and I know that it's a very weird peculiarity of mine. I rewatch movies a lot. You do? Like, I, 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 the movies that I love, I watch over and over and over again. And with Clouds of Souls Maria, like, the minute that it was over, I was like, oh my God, I want to watch that again, which is kind of crazy because it's not like a action movie. It's not like a rom com. It's not like anything that's like, it's not a comedy. It's not something that I like wanted to read, like, listen to, like, the funny bits and stuff. But it's just like an inc- I just thought the performances were amazing. The direction was amazing. Visually, it was great. But basically, this movie uh, it stars Juliette Binoche, uh, Kristen Stewart, and uh, Chloe Grace Moretz. I guess I those like are the Chloe three. Grace Do you? Yeah, she. I like from like Kick Ass. I loved her. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I loved I loved Kick Ass. I loved her on Thirty Rock. I think True. she's super duper. Oh yeah, she's great. She's I mean, and it's always really weird to me that she's still so young. She's yeah. only eighteen. For whatever reason, I thought she was in her 20s already. She got a lot of work in a very short period. Yeah. I mean, she's amazing and kick-ass. But yeah, so basically this story, um, I'll give kind of the brief synopsis of it, um, or at least the premise of it, which is that Juliette Binoche plays like this like world-class, very kind of classical, um, famous actress. Um, and uh, Kristen Stewart plays her personal assistant. And um, basically through a whole confluence of things – um, Juliet Binoche's character um, agrees to play, to do this play, which happens to be the play that she did when she was 18 years old, that kind of made her. And this play is basically about this young 18-year-old ingenue who, like, seduces this 40-year-old woman and kind of, like, wrecks her life. And um, and so now, like, 20 years on, Juliet Binoche has been asked to play where she played the 18-year-old before, has now been asked to play, like, the 40-year-old, the older character. And so she retreats to this uh, village in Switzerland called Sils Maria with her personal assistant, Kristen Stewart. And just the two of them confined in this house kind of, like, work through this script. And and in the course of it, obviously, Juliet Binoche's character is kind of going through this whole reckoning of what it means to age and what is what is it where is her position in life and she still sees herself as that 18 year old but now she's like the 40 year old and chloe grace moretz is the young kind of like Lindsay. well people compare her to like the Lindsay lowen actress like she's apparently like you know getting into it with paparazzi and like whatever but she's also incredibly talented so in a lot of the reviews people are like oh yeah she plays like a, a what one would imagine like is like the Lindsay lowen character i actually weirdly see her as more of the Kristen stewart like in real life person okay. which added this kind of multiple layer which all of them have kind of spoken about because in the court so she's, chloe grace moretz is supposed to play in the new version of the play the 18 year old anyways so it's this whole meditation on hollywood on art on aging on time on the relationships between women intergenerationally and friendships and sisterhood and all these sorts of things and it was great i absolutely loved it i was completely blown away and my secondary rave which is totally related to it is 
slash rant, I guess, because it's going to end up going into a rant. I'm sure of it. But Kristen Stewart is amazing in Clouds of Sils Maria. Like she will blow you away with her performance. It's so good. It's so natural. It's so smart the way that she plays the the personal assistant. Does she emote? she well she yeah she does actually in a very very smart way and um she won the cesar for the um the role which the cesar is the french oscar um for the her role in this movie and she's the first american woman to ever win that award which is like kind of amazing um and uh and it's and i was kind of skeptical cuz i was like come on really but like she was so incredibly good and this goes towards my rant, which is like, I'm kind of sick of everybody like locking Kristen Stewart inside the Twilight box and like being like, that's all that she can do. Because like, if you watch all of the movies that she did before Twilight, even during Twilight that were not Twilight and then post Twilight, she's a great actress. She really is. And I know that I'm kind of a Kristen Stewart apologist slash defender. Kind of. I really, I know. Like I, I sent a tweet out earlier this week that I kind of realized that the only two actors or actresses that I've ever seen their entire movie catalog are Katherine Hepburn and Kristen Stewart, which is really random. That is a random pairing. I know. But I, I adore Kristen Stewart. I really do like her a lot. But I also, at the same time, understand objectively why people don't like her. Um, and I get it. It's just It just so happens to be that for me, her weird like quirks and tics and things like that don't bother me. Like they, I, I like them, so it works. But in Clouds of Sales Maria, like she's just so good. And she actually weirdly completely outacts uh, Juliette Binoche like their scenes together you would think like Juliette Binoche would be because she is who she is like we just absolutely own them and Kristen Stewart in her quiet just really smart way of how she approached the character just um was kind of the star of the movie and, and um quite a few you know reviews and um you know from top people have basically all said that like this was Kristen Stewart's movie it wasn't Juliette Binoche's which is crazy but yeah it was so good I can't recommend recommend this movie enough it's yeah, hands down, the best movie I've seen since Boyhood. Ooh. Maybe possibly even better. I don't know. But Ooh. I just, right now, I just really love it. And the problem is nobody has seen it. And that really frustrates me because I want to talk to people about it. But, like, no one's seen it. So um, it's really frustrating. But it's it's so great. And if you watch it and you have thoughts because there's so much, like, kind of unpack about the movie, tweet me at 40 Deuce Twits. I would love to have a conversation about the movie because it's just phenomenal. I loved it. Um just great performances all around and case do totally owned it. And that made me super, super happy. That's awesome. I also, it's going to be a fun transition to mine because I have another thing that I watched, which left an impression on me. I was staying up late like a couple nights ago and just like, I can be super, super nocturnal and just completely lose any sense of internal clock when I'm not paying attention. And I got sucked into watching a facts of life marathon. Whoa. I know. On where? It was on, on cable somewhere. Like, okay. I don't know. Oh, like, it wasn't like a streamable thing. No, no, no. I don't think it's stream. If it is, I didn't find it. But anyway, it was it was on late night cable somewhere. And I was watching it. And I think I'd seen this episode before. Because when I was younger, I used to watch Nick at Night a lot. And get really into, like, old 60s, 70s, 80s TV shows. Mostly 60s, 70s. Facts of Life came on sort of later in my Nick at Night watching when it was an 80s show that got picked up i always so i always knew a lot more about like 60s and 70s culture when i was a kid than 90s which was made me strange and it became clear pretty quickly in this facts of life episode that it was a very special episode of facts of life in which 2d sneaks away to manhattan and because their boarding school is somewhere else in upstate new york and she is like all alone by herself 
and she hangs out, hangs out in this diner and this like other teenage girl is there but secretly she's a prostitute and she's trying to like recruit Tootie to come be a prostitute with her and Tootie's like super naive about it doesn't know what's going on and the audience is like super nervous that Tootie's gonna get sucked in by this prostitute and her pimp and everything and the lesson is like hey kids don't be a prostitute and it made me realize that like we don't do this anymore in tv like I don't feel like any like sitcoms ever step back have this sudden moment of like high-minded very specialness where they like try to teach a lesson I feel like TV has entirely given up on this idea. Yeah, it's not like you have the Modern Family episode where, like, the son gets molested or something. Yeah, it's not molested, but, like, finds marijuana and decides whether or not he wants to smoke it or not. Like, you know, which is such a staple of the 80s. Exactly. It was such an 80s thing. Like, all these shows, Family Ties, uh, Different Strokes, all had, like, I went looking through, like, Art of Lit, very special episodes. Facts of Life was fairly big into them because i guess it was sort of supposed to be a very vaguely educational show with its title well, and everything. it was about the facts of life right and you you know you're learning about the facts of life you take the good you take, you take the, bad. the good you take the bad you put them all together do you know that song was written by alan thick I, I did know that yeah i saw that in the credits while i was watching this facts of life marathon yeah. um yeah so it just made me wonder is this a good thing like kids today when they encounter like a stranger on the street do they not they don't have an episode of facts of life to go back to and give them like uh oh i learned or like about saved by the bell when jesse finds the pills right that's the like that's like the most mocked one very special of all it's mocked and i think that that's the problem is i think that that episode kind of like is where this very special episode jumped the shark yeah like it's where we became where kids like suddenly became self-aware and we're like now like you know what i mean like nowadays everybody panders in irony and, um, and like strangers with candy like mock the entire concept the entire time well that's true too I mean, like the whole after school special thing. Yeah. I, and I maybe, maybe part of it is that like these conversations are about, you know, drugs or about pedophilia, which is a common one in these, in these very special episodes. They almost always there's something bad happening to kids or like some alcohol or drugs thing, or in 2D's case, getting lured into prostitution by this teenager wearing a fur, a fur coat in this diner in New York City um, with her pimp who doesn't look like a pimp because he doesn't have a hat. So people are confused. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um People, I guess people just have these conversations more now. These aren't like as taboo topics as they used to be. That's so, true. I mean, what are, I mean, that's the thing. Need, it's like, people what don't are need sitcoms? The, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What, I mean, what are the taboo topics these days? Ooh. Is anything off the table? Uh, I don't think so. I think, I think, I think that the culture, I mean, I'm sure there are things if you want to talk about like, I mean, then I don't, I don't even know what it would be. Like, I guess abortion would probably still qualify as that on some level, but they still, but TV does that more. That's more of like a, um, what's the word for it? That's more polarizing than taboo. I, I don't know. I, I just don't think, I just don't think that sitcoms or comedies at all try to teach a lesson. And apparently Seinfeld, cause that was relative coming, started in the very late eighties, 89, I think. It was a 90s show had like a rule about trying to never, ever, ever be educational, even slightly. Have, like, right. no moments of, like, aww. You know, like, Family Matters was another show that did this. Like every oh, the whole single, TGIF lineup. Every single episode of Family Matters had some moment in the end where there was a conversation between uh, Carl and Laura, usually, sometimes Eddie, maybe the mother, where there was, like, some learning moment and the yeah, audience the all cheered. Yeah, exactly. And the people, it just doesn't do that. TV doesn't moralize in that way anymore sitcoms definitely don't at least not the ones i'm watching maybe some of the 
Maybe Network like one, Mike too, but and I, Molly and but I also, everybody loves Raymond, I like don't those. Think so though, but I feel Mike and Molly definitely doesn't. But I, I think that part of it also is like there aren't family shows anymore. I feel like those were sort of things that were meant to happen on shows like parents watch with their kids. And now parents and kids watch completely different shows. Well, interestingly, the show that does come to mind where the last time that I saw that there was some sort of like teachable moment episode or whatever was Fresh Off the Boat. Okay. The way that that show kind of handled like different issues and stuff, there was kind of like you walked away after 30 minutes kind of feeling like, oh, like not that I learned something, but like there was something to learn there for younger people who watched it. Not that that show is popular. And you know what I mean? Like nowadays, that's not what cells i mean modern family has that in the sense of like you learn how to interact with people and how not to you know treat people and stuff like that you know there's all sort people are working out the kinks of being a family but i don't know i just feel like nothing was this as this facts of life was so unbelievably heavy-handed about stuff all in the family used to do this stuff too they used to have these big political issue episodes that would have some sort of learning available to the viewer if they wanted it uh, yeah, yeah. I just feel like that doesn't happen anymore, and I don't know if we're better off for it. If people are learning these lessons without TV, or if TV was never necessary in the first place, or what? It was just an interesting no, sort of time capsule moment. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. That's so interesting. I didn't really think about it, but you're right. I mean, I think that nowadays the thing is, is that kids are getting access to that at way earlier ages, yeah. so that by the time that they're watching a sitcom, like it, they're already over it. They're like, yeah, we get it. There's drugs. You maybe know what the, I mean? Maybe, like, maybe the Disney shows have this stuff now. Maybe they do very. Oh, stuff maybe. That. I don't Maybe. think so. I don't. Not the ones that I ever. If watched. you guys know, if you guys are out there and you know, after you watch Clouds of Sils Maria, yeah, um, let us know what is the deal with respect to if you watch the Dis, if you have kids and you have to watch the Disney shows, if you still like the Disney shows, that's fine too. Um, but like, what is the deal? Like, is this happening somewhere that we're just not aware of? I wonder if we did a if we did a very special episode of NCR recording, what would it be like? What do we warn the children about? I think we warn the children about the post midnight transportation situation at the U S open. <laughs> Cause that is precarious. It is frightening. You can get on the wrong seven train and it may leave you walking funny. Ooh, I don't like the side of that. Have you never been on that? On, oh my God. The late, the like, if you ever take, if you take the last transport, the media transport from the U S open back into Manhattan, the guy who's driving the bus invariably, that is his last shift and his last drive. He cares not for the passengers or the contents of the bus. He just wants to get his route over with. And it is shocking. The speed over which you go over potholes and around corners and hit the brakes. It's insane. It's like, you're just bouncing. This happened every time. I don't remember this being a trend. It's very, it's very common. It's never, dude, this year, like, it's never a leisurely drive back into Manhattan. It is, like, it is, it is, it is bouncy. Okay. It is bouncy. I don't like it. Maybe I just enjoy bouncing more than you do. (laughs) And we'll leave it with that. Thanks for listening, guys. I I need a very special episode now after that. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye. So scarred. <laughs> you take the good.
you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. The facts of life. There's a time you. 